Hey, Zach. Hello, Saga. Well, we're back, and I wanted to switch gears to something we mentioned with the last series on stress and come into the topic of connection. And connection always gets overlooked. I feel like it even gets more overlooked than sleep. And you know how much I love sleep and how I feel about sleep. That's like some major disrespect toward it. <laughs> yeah. Sleep just gets stomped on. But I feel connection is even more stomped on. People just consider it touchy-feely, that can't be real, that can be... I even had, I remember in med school having an argument with somebody about what makes a person the most alive. And his adamant position was, we are worth being alive the more rational we are. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a very automaton way of living through the world, isn't it? Yeah, which, well, you know, that was my counter-argument. That's a freaking computer, okay? <laughs> Yeah, which is, I mean, I guess some people find value in that. I mean, I was going to go with we're as worth living as we have Instagram followers. Does yeah. that, that's how I get all my connection is social media. Okay. Well, that's a different kind of computer algorithm. So that's right there. <laughs> You're still in the camp robot. <laughs> that is, that is not true for disclosure in case anybody misses the sarcasm there. Oh yeah. I'm uh, not even sure Zach's on Instagram. <clears throat> I am Facebook. not. I mean, our our group is, our, our company is, but I'm yeah. not. Yeah, ditto. And nor do I run that because I would be horribly atrocious at running that. Uh, so I, for this podcast, I just want to lay out that our goal with this is to show you that connectedness is a real risk factor for your health. It's a real problem that has real effects and consequences, and you have control over it. It's as we like to call it in medicine, a modifiable as much as anything else, really. You know, you can modify how much your body weighs. You can modify what your blood pressure does. You can modify what substances you put in your body. You can modify how disconnected you feel. So we'll run it like this. We'll show you, as we like to do, we'll scare you first and tell you the risk factors, <laughs> what this is going to lead to and what the current state of things are, and then kind of talk about what's good about being connected, what's protective, and then we'll end it with, okay, what can you actually do about this? <clears throat> and somewhere in there, we'll talk data and mechanisms and so forth. We'll give uh, funny little stories in the meantime. I feel like that's more, it's more entertaining when we, when we go off topic, which I'm sure we yeah. will. When we talk about connection, I, have, I think this is probably going to be the most off topic one we've had <laughs> where we just tangent ourselves. So let's see. Let's see how it goes. Let's find out. <clears throat> so loneliness disconnection, social isolation. If you're going to talk to um, a social psychologist, social neurologist, any of these people, any of these cognitive scientists and researchers, they're going to give you specific definitions about all these things and how they're subtly different. I'm going to lump them all together and just say connectedness, loneliness, social isolation. We'll just put them together and I'm going to call it loneliness or disconnection as we go on. But it's essentially not having people to support you, having the feeling, it is a, a perception that you're on your own. And this doesn't actually mean that you are on your own because that's the difference between a perception and reality. You may have a bunch of people that are there ready to support you through thick and thin, but you don't feel it. And so you are lonely at that point. And this is actually happening more and more, worse and worse, as time goes on over the last few decades. Right now, if you were going to ask people, actually, let's back it up. If you were going to go in the 1980s and ask people, how many confidants do you have? If you had something you wanted to express, you wanted to share something important to you, how many people could you go to and talk about it? How many people do you think? The typical answer was? Yeah, um, the most common answer, not the, not the majority of people, just the, the most common. The median answer, uh, I'm going to go with 12. Okay. I, you have a very wonderful life. Uh, three. I'm just thinking, because <laughs> okay, I was thinking the 80s was like a bunch of like, you know, a bunch of people getting together and partying and totally frivolous way of, uh, I mean, that's kind of like the hallmark of the 80s, right? Whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm wrong. Just suffice to say I'm wrong. You were alive in the 80s, right? Yeah, I was three when it ended. So <laughs> I had... Zero confidence, so. <laughs> <laughs> you, could, you could talk to your parents, I think, at that problem. 
Barely. Yeah. If you had a poopy diaper, they would they would listen so, to you. So I had two confidants when I was three years old at the at the <laughs> end of the eighties. So I was, I was under the I was I was sub subpar. I was under the median. <laughs> All right, limited social circle. But if you went and you asked people these days, you know, in the two thousands, two thousand tens, what do you think the most common answer is for how many confidants do you have? How many people can you trust to listen to you for something important? I mean, I'm guessing one. So, yeah, it was one or less. And in fact, a quarter of the people said zero, which is way less than 12. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot less than 12. Uh, that's so sad. Yeah, it is sad. That's just, it's just really sad that nobody, nobody has anybody to confide. Any, go yeah. on. And then if you're going to look at other studies, for example, Cigna Health Insurance did a study because they know that it affects health problems. So this mm-hmm. is your health insurance company potentially doing this and doing national surveys on this. And in ni- 2019 pre-pandemic, 54% of people said they were lonely. And then if you're going to look at age differences, it was about 50% in boomers, so people that are older, and almost 80% in Generation Z. So the younger people seem to have more loneliness significantly. And this is a thing that builds up over time, and its health effects build up over time. So this is going to be a problem. Well, which is also, again, kind of going off topic, shocker, which is what we talked about would happen. But especially in the age of we're like known to be a community or a generation or a culture that's around connectedness all the time because we have all this technology to connect us. And so we have all these venues to speak to each other or see each other. We can video chat and, you know, what we're doing right now and talk on the phone, text, social media. And we're significantly lonelier now than we were 40 years ago yeah. when we had none of those things except for the phone. I, I just, that's kind of fascinating to see. You would think that that would make us less lonely because you can just, you're, you're a phone call away from anybody at any given time, which, and you always have your phone on you, but yeah. And if you look around, people seem to always be on their phones. Yeah. And that's not to say that there's any connection between the two. I just think it's interesting. Yeah. And if you look at particular studies, if you drill down, then you can end up finding conflicting results of, oh yeah, well, right. technology helped this particular group of people feel less lonely and technology somehow made this particular group of people be more lonely and really comes down to how are you using that technology? Are you using it for video chats to talk with a good friend or a couple of other people or are you using it to be on Facebook and trying to compare yourself to others? Yeah. And I think there's a thing like obviously Facebook can be used for connection, but it can also be a way to reinforce isolation as an, as a Facebook expert <laughs> and somebody who, <laughs> who uses it so frequently. As someone who's been on it for certainty. almost 15 minutes in the last 10 years. Go on. <laughs> Tell me more. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm not much better, so I, I'm going to leave it there too. But if you want to quantify it, if you're looking at these studies, people, researchers seem to say that a loneliness is actually not just a feeling of being lonely, because that's normal. But it's actually saying that you feel real deal lonely at least three times a week. And that's what they look at if they're going to be looking at loneliness. And in fact, there's actually a whole scale that's fairly decent at picking up on loneliness. And it's called the UCLA loneliness scale. You can go online and take the test if you want. It's 20 questions about. And, you know, I was considering asking you all the questions, but maybe not. <laughs> I think that might take a long time. I actually just was considering doing the test. Right and, now? Uh, Should we pause and then have you do the test and then come back? Yeah, let's let's pause and I'll come back and, and we'll we'll see what we actually ended up at. So let's uh let's do that. We'll be right back. <laughs> all right. Okay, so I just took the test. I got a twenty seven. The scale is twenty to eighty, it looks like twenty to one hundred. Whatever, but low. I, I scored fairly low on loneliness, so I'm and low is good. Yes, low is yeah. good. You want to score low in loneliness. Being high in loneliness is lonely. Yeah, I mean, so what kind of questions did it ask you? Uh, it just asked how often do you not feel connected to those around you? How often do you feel that you have someone that you can turn to? Do you feel like people can turn to you? Uh, it asked, um, do you feel like you don't have anything in common with people around you? Do you feel like you're in the group but not part of the group? I think that most of us would call these fairly intuitive questions. They weren't ones that you have to think about a ton. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I feel pretty good about things like that. I mean, I feel like I have 
pretty good relationship. So, you know, I, I like my wife, which helps. Um, that is important. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think I do okay with that. I mean, I struggle with some things, obviously, that we, we talk about and loneliness in general. Uh, I don't think is one of them, which I'm grateful for. Did you take the test earlier? Yeah. I don't remember my exact numbers, but I did take the previous version and the version three. And somewhere, I was not low, but I was not high either. I was kind of in the middle. I want to say 30s or so. But then when I took, that was with the previous generation. Then when I took the most recent iteration of it, I think I went up to 40s. So my loneliness increased within five minutes because I just wanted to see what, how they compared. I think, and that's I think maybe just, important to know about these scales. Maybe you're just a deep person and you're alone with your thoughts sometimes. And more so I'm just kind of like a dog. <laughs> I'm just going to go. I'm hey, okay with that. Dogs are happy. I know. Dogs are fantastic. <laughs> sometimes I want to be a dog. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad that you're doing that because... If you were high in loneliness, that would mean some not so good things for your health because loneliness is actually on par for things that we more readily accept as risk factors for disease like obesity or being sedentary. So the more times you're lonely directly correlates to the number of cardiovascular risk factors you have. For example, the more times you're lonely, more likely it is that you have a BMI problem and hypertension or cholesterol issues. Uh, high A1C, which is the proxy by which we measure diabetes, um, lower exercise tolerance. People that are experiencing loneliness or social isolation, I'm going to clump it together here now, are about 32% uh, more likely to die. And that's independent of age. When they try to control for things like age and health status and smoking and all that, that's what comes out. About a third higher risk of dying. And in fact, <clears throat> So in 2010, there was a really big meta-analysis done. They looked at 148 studies trying to look at loneliness and mortality via disease. They only wanted to know about it via disease, like heart disease, for example. So they actually excluded things like suicide. So right there off the bat, with that design, you can think, all right, well, maybe this is actually underestimating things a bit. So even though it did that and... It tried to control for things like age and health status. They found for people with strong relationships, they were about 50% more likely to survive, which is huge. Yeah. That's just huge. Yeah, especially... The and that's not even the only... Well, on. say, especially when you exclude for things like suicide, which, as we know, is a major risk for people who are feeling lonely. Um, that's very profound. Now, I can only imagine if <clears throat> that same meta-analysis had gone ahead and incorporated it. But there are other factors that show how protective this can be. I mean, if you look at men and women with social support, right, they have people that are there for them, and you just want to look at their coronary artery disease over two years, people with social support were about eight times less likely to have their heart disease progress. Eight times less likely. Yeah. And if you were going to look at the ultrasound of their carotid arteries you would find that people with better social support had less plaque and lower resting blood pressures. And in fact, if you just look at women, a lot of these studies were done at men. So there's at least one study that was done. So let's just look at women and the women that are high risk for plaques in the arteries. It showed less disease in women that have good social support after following them for three years and trying to control for everything else. That was the difference that they found. It's really huge. Well, especially when you talk about such a highly prevalent disease like that. Yeah. I mean, you're not talking about a rare, you know, a rare thing that hardly happened to anybody. When you're talking about coronary disease or, or vascular disease, I mean, the prevalence is huge. So to get that much of a reduction in a about highly... About 50% of the country. Yeah. So you get a, high, a major reduction in a highly prevalent disease is pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you used the word earlier, profound. I think that mm -hmm. really spell, uh, says it. Like it is. And I just want to keep going here on things to scare you or make you feel better, depending on where you fall on this loneliness scale. But if you had poor social connection, right? Let's say you took that UCLA loneliness scale and you were on that high end. Well, poor social connection has an increased risk of developing heart disease by about 30% and for stroke by about 32%. So again, a third increase. And then if you're talking about 
viruses and immune system stuff, there is a direct relationship with people developing illness and how much social interaction they have when they purposely went and tried to put cold virus in people's noses and see who gets sick, who does not get sick. Substantially more people got sick that were lonelier. So you're saying that we should gather more <laughs> and hang out together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? If that was safe, I would be saying that. Yes. But also, don't do that at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's just the physical aspect. I hate to break this into physical and mental because uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say this is the same damn thing. But if we're going to go ahead and talk about mental, it's also associated with poor cognitive function, dementia, right? We recently had Nina giving a talk about dementia. Mm -hmm. I wasn't there, so I don't know if she talked about this, but probably she did. But it's your risk for developing dementia if you don't have social support, if you don't have connection, goes up by about a third. And you know what? I'm going to go ahead and say that all these studies saying that are actually an underestimate because if you have dementia, if you're confused and you don't have people around you, who's going to notice that you got more confused? That's a good point. That's a really good point. <laughs> who's going to bring this up? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that makes sense because even if you look at the, we know vascular disease is a risk factor for dementia. And so if they have worse vascular disease, which we just talked about, they're going to increase the risk of dementia. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that doesn't even go to talk about all of the, and I don't even know how to quantify this or the physiology behind maintaining an quote active brain or you know engaging other people and and keeping you know what uh, the colloquialism i guess would be but staying sharp by interacting with other people but i i can't imagine that that doesn't have a, a strong effect on preventing dementia by by men maintaining some degree of uh social interaction just by the means of your cognition and interacting with other people oh that brings up but a really good point that you hit on because i think a lot of Scientists, researchers, um, people that study how humanity developed would actually give that a lot of weight, what you just said, mm -hmm. meaning that social interaction is what keeps us sharp because our brains got big for social interaction's sake. It is the interaction, the connection with people, trying to judge relationships, threats, trustworthiness, coming together to accomplish things that forced our brains to increase in size. So is it any wonder that continuing to do that helps keep them healthy and in shape? Right. And then going back to other psychiatric diseases, it's completely associated with things like psychoses, dementia, like we talked about, impulse control problems, personality disorders. But again, this is, this is definitely an association because it is entirely possible to simply having these problems causes people to be lonely. Yes. Yeah, I remember talking to a buddy once trying to he, – he brought up the um, Chicago Bears player, I think his name is Brandon Marshall, that mm -hmm. has by, by a personality disorder. I think disorder. bipolar, if I remember yeah. correctly. Uh, I think he's borderline personality disorder. Is it borderline? You might be right. I think it is borderline. I think you're right. So I started trying to explain to him what that means, and all he could tell me was, so you mean uh, he's just a jerk? I'm like, no, no, no. This is, a, this is a real syndrome that affects people – no, 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 no. It's, he's just a jerk. So, <laughs> well, I think that was the end of the conversation a, for him. He's a, he's a pretty well-liked guy now. I mean, he's come out and talked about it and stuff. I think people actually like him. I don't know if people would call him a I jerk. Don't I mean, I don't, I don't know the guy personally, but uh, from yeah. what I've seen of him, people... This was a few years ago. So yeah. I think his life has changed as he's he'd, gone he'd through and He'd had some help. issues, for sure, as, 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 I, as I remember. But yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's just interesting. But, <laughs> so... Is it any surprise that somebody might be lonely if that's how people are interpreting things? Sure, of course, you know, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, how do you fix that problem then? Yeah. Oh, man, we'll get that to that at the end, but that, yeah. that hits on the issue, right? Loneliness is its own worst enemy. Right. And then with that, in hand with that, loneliness and depression feed off each other, right? Mental yeah. health and loneliness feed off each other, but they are different because some people may think, well, loneliness is really just depression by another name. But when you're looking for that, when people try to control for signs of depression, symptoms of depression, they find that, okay, loneliness can predict depression, but depression cannot predict loneliness. And they find that loneliness itself is associated with higher cardiovascular risk, but it doesn't seem that the depressive symptoms are. Hmm. I would have thought that. That's interesting. That I, I yeah. guess I would, have, I would have thought depression was also associated <clears throat> with an independent risk for worsening outcomes. Yeah, 
And you know what? There may be some studies that say that, but in they probably come along with loneliness Just, and social right. isolation and it's a constellation of things that come together. Right. Right. So, but the point of that is that loneliness is its real own risk factor, disconnection, as I like to call it, because it, to me, when I say disconnection to people, it just paints the picture of what the opposite of that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right? a good, that's a good word for it. There are also studies done to try and elucidate this further uh, involving hypnosis. And just off the bat, when I say the word hypnosis, uh, I start getting a little suspicious and suspect and uh, I got to worry about reliability, but I'll tell it to you anyway. And that it found that hypnotizing people to have them recall feelings and they took a group and split them in two. And so now there's two groups and one is remembering feelings of connection, togetherness, good times, and the other one's doing disconnection and the feelings that are associated with that. And they've then had them do quizzes and surveys and interact and they found that the people that were reliving a disconnected moment and that was the point of the hypnosis try and have them relive it so they could bring it right into their right now their present moment they found that those people had increases in perceived stress increased fear of negative judgment they had more anxiety they had more anger they were more pessimistic they had lower self-esteem all these things travel together i would like to throw in an aside about hypnosis here yeah nina i i I really wish nina was here because we've talked about this before she knows how much (laughs) i hate hypnosis i it's it drives me crazy but i think the reason why i hate hypnosis because i'm probably like most people when i think like people get hypnotized into barking like a dog and they start barking and i'm like this is just preposterous i get so irritated (laughs) when i see things like that i can't even tell you uh but I think when people are talking about hypnosis like this, that, that sounds more like a mindfulness exercise where you're trying to specifically bring up recall and focus on those feelings. I don't think that's the modern view of what hypnosis actually is. So I, I think that there's probably a little bit of a, a a difference between what you're describing and what the average person thinks, myself included, when I hear the word hypnosis. Mm-hmm. Because you're basically describing recall of events and feelings and reliving those things Mm -hmm. and all the negative feelings and emotions that come along with that uh, as opposed to reliving positive things um, and trying to, you know, you've got, you have actually science behind that with the reticular activating system and, you know, rewiring and and remembering uh, certain events and and focusing on those and recalling gratefulness journaling and all all the positive things that can come of that uh, if if you do it in a, in a setting where you're building positive connections uh, as opposed to deep, deep sleep. When I snap my fingers, you know, stand on your chair and howl at the moon. Like, that's just, that's not a thing. I don't know. I saw this TED Talk of a hypnosis guy, a hypnotist, I think they're called. Made it seem like <laughs> it's a thing. But <laughs> when it comes to hypnosis, my, it's good that you brought up that perception that people have of it. But my judgment of it, my prejudice against it is not that it doesn't work necessarily or isn't real completely. My concern is that it does not resurface things that were necessarily real. It has to do with the fallibility of the human brain, of anyone's brain, and yeah. possibly recalling things that were not true ever. And because of suggestibility, yeah. then building it in. And that's, my, that's where my prejudice comes from for that. <clears throat> However, in this study, it doesn't even matter. Because right. as long as true. they were focused on a sense of isolation... In their real yes. life, it's going to produce what they're actually interested in. Okay, like yeah, what comes along with that? It's still, I agree. It's still an applicable study for that reason. But um, yes, I agree with you. We're we're highly suggestible, and there are multiple. We could talk about this. We could do whole podcasts on stuff like this. Uh, so <laughs> we don't need to get too deep. We'll do into that later. That. <laughs> all right. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that it has all these effects, and yet I don't know how often. When you're in med school or residency or currently or when you visited a doctor, has anyone ever brought up this concept? That connected this matters? Yeah. When you were actually talking with patients, not in some lecture, but actually in the in the face-to-face interactions with patients. Yeah. I can't say it came up. I mean, that's just the nature of medicine now. Unfortunately, you don't have time to talk about this stuff and 
I don't remember outside of maybe, you know, just inpatient psych rounds when you're in your psychiatry rotation. Aside from that, I don't know if it comes up real often. Yeah. And that's too bad because it's something that we can control. Some people think that it's fully genetic and there is definitely a predisposition that comes from hereditary, from heredity, heredity. Is that a word? (laughs) That's the word I'm looking for. From heredity. <laughs> you know, I'm just not always right about everything. Sometimes no, I will I mean, trip no, over that's a word. Not, that's that's okay. It makes you human. <laughs> it makes you it makes you relatable and connected. <laughs> See, I'm not a computer. <laughs> I just proved it. But if you look at if you want to disprove that it's definitely fully, completely genetic and predetermined, nice group of people to look like would be identical twins. And so when you do identical twin studies and you say, okay, well, this twin had this level of loneliness. So what would you think if, I, if you were looking at a group of identical twins, even a large group of identical twins, and their exact twin went ahead and took this loneliness scale and scored something on it. They scored, let's say, low on it. What would you think that means for the other twin? I mean, if you're talking about a strictly, you know, heritable trait then of course they would score the same but i'm willing to bet that's not the issue and score one for twinsburg shout out to twinsburg ohio not far from where i grew up well done with all your twin studies (laughs) thank you twinsburg but what was the result you tell me so about if you were going to go and say that they match you know twin a took the test they scored low so twin b should score low too you would be right about 48 percent of the time so less than half the time you would be correct so you're more likely to be right if they're not twins. For the four yeah. years, if you're, basically, <laughs> Maybe. It's basically random chance, right? I mean, that's, that's what that comes down to. So that's unexpected, which just simply shows that there's other stuff going on. Yeah. And that's the other stuff that, you know, we can control. But I'm not yet done scaring you and telling you all the things that can be affected by connection and loneliness. It also screws up how you interpret the world, being disconnected does. If you go ahead and take two groups of people, randomize them, and then simply segregate them based off who's more lonely, who's less lonely, and then give them a set of images to look at, like some objects and some faces, and you're going to make sure that they have a nice mix of positive faces and objects and negative faces and objects, like all right, negative would be something such as angry people, and then positive would be happy people. And if you're looking at things that have those feelings associated, nice thing would be a bouquet of flowers and a bad thing would be a nasty toilet. If you're going to have people do this, yes, this was real. They did this. (laughs) (laughs) That when people were looking at pleasant people, the lonely group had less activation of reward centers in the brain as compared to when they looked at pleasant objects, which is different than the less lonely group. The more connected group actually had a bigger response to the people over the objects and more reward coming from seeing pleasant feelings caused by people, like happy people, smiling people, things like that. Then if you want to look at things that were kind of really associated just real time, there have been blood pressure studies that are done. So in the 90s, they did some blood pressure studies on college women because that's where... Most studies are done as that's where most research is done. So you got it. So these were college people. And so they found lower blood pressure reactivity if the people had um, a friend with them when they were doing something stressful. The stressful thing in this case was arithmetic. But it wasn't easy arithmetic. It wasn't two plus two. They started with four-digit num- four numbers in the thousands and said, all right, we want you to go backwards by subtracting 17. <laughs> Go. (laughs) That's kind of stressful. But if they had a friend nearby just sitting with them in the room, they had less change in their blood pressure. Their blood pressure did not go up as much. Oh, that's fascinating. I would do worse. They And this is why I put this out there. I, I mentioned that it's women because they did find this effect was more common in women. And less found in men. Yeah, because men don't... And the, I, I, I shouldn't say that men don't... Like, but my, my anticipation for myself is I don't want to look stupid in front of somebody else that I know. I don't care about looking And that is exactly dumb. their hypothesis. Yeah, I don't care yeah. about looking dumb in front of a <laughs> bunch of people that 
that don't know me, whatever, that's fine. But if I know somebody, I don't want to look like that. That's interesting. Yeah, and they found that if they were getting the impression that there was a judgment going on, that that finding flew out. Hmm. And it could even make people more reactive. <laughs> so not only does it have to be a friend, it has to be a good friend. <laughs> or at least a non-judgy friend. So maybe we should talk about why this happens. You know, we've done the scary stuff. And this isn't even all of it. This is just some of it. And I'll probably mention more as we start going through why this happens. But the worst cardiovascular outcomes, the worst survival outcomes from disconnection. Um, how does it work? How would you think it works if you're just going to guess randomly? You mean <clears throat> the physiology of it? No, just the mechanism, be a physiology, be a behavior-wise. Yeah, I was going to say, because that's part of it, I think, you know, whether you're teasing out the physiology, you know, if you're going to have increased stress because you're lonely and the cortisol release, and we can talk about all the stuff that we talked about in our previous podcast, all the negative detriments that that can have. But the behavioral stuff is important as well. I mean, if you're in a, if you're a single person and you don't meet up with anybody ever and you're lonely and then you don't really feel motivated to do anything and then you do become depressed and then you start eating terribly you're not exercising and you're sleeping poorly all of the things that come from that i mean it's not hard to see why that can rattle or spiral out of control fairly quickly and you are completely correct that is one of the most likely mechanisms there's multiple mechanisms yes yeah. but health behaviors is one of them not only are we worse at regulating our own behavior when it's just us and no one else or just not many people we're also less aware of it we mm -hmm. even know what we're screwing up, right? Mm -hmm. Just if you don't work out for a day, and eh, it's just a day, and you're not really aware that it's been a year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just a pizza, but it's your seventh pizza of the day. <laughs> right. So there's less awareness there. And we have less ability, neurologically, to regulate ourselves just because of actual functioning of our executive control sections of our brains. So prefrontal cortex, anterior cingulate cortex, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. These areas aren't getting as much activity. They're just not as active in people that are lonely. Mm -hmm. And that's going to influence how they behave. And then if you go into that and say, all right, in the behavior settings, that's just one person on their own. But they're also potentially missing a social support structure. Right? If you have, for example... If you had some medical problem and you needed to go to the hospital once a week and have an infusion or show up at this appointment, that appointment, and you have somebody in your life, you have a spouse, you have a wife or a husband or a kid or a parent or somebody that's going to say, all right, we're going. And they're going to make sure that you stick to what you're supposed to stick to. That's going to have much better outcomes for that. And we, we see that often in the ER. That's something we, I get, you know, people who are on chemotherapy and misdoses and their cancer gets worse or... You know, whatever they're supposed to have pick line antibiotics and they don't have any around to give it to them and you know because they have an infection that they, yeah we see that all the time and mm -hmm. it's those are those are some of the saddest cases those are very very difficult to manage not just from a physical and cognitive standpoint but from an emotional standpoint those ones will beat you down a little bit at times because those are tough yeah and those are people that end up they don't have anyone to help them at home so they oftentimes will end up going to a nursing home mm -hmm. and other times they fall through the cracks because they don't qualify for the nursing home. They still don't have anyone. And you're just kind of, everybody's screwed. Yep. Particularly that person. Yep. On the other hand, though, having that social support structure, if it's not rich enough, it's not varied enough, you can put a lot of strain on whoever's doing the caregiving. Yeah. Which we also talked about we in see that podcast. Too. Yeah. We, we, we talked about that. I mean, about people and their yeah, health, health outcomes from taking care of people with dementia and how difficult that is for them. Yeah. Yeah. And so those people, the caregivers, can get so burnt out, they just leave. That happens. Yeah. They're done. Right. And now that's no good for the actual person who's experiencing the problems. Mm -hmm. And then if you, some people's social support structure is full of negative people. They're just really bad influences. Right. If, if your social support structure is full of people who smoke with you, it's, it's going to be real hard to stop smoking. If they drink yeah. with you, it's going to be real hard to stop drinking. Yeah. It can have a negative effect. I would love to see a study that looked at people who have a quote-unquote good social support system full of smokers. Hmm. 
and that person smokes and see the outcome versus somebody who's got a bad social support system but doesn't smoke or whatever. Pick your bad habit. Yeah, I I didn't look for it. I, I don't, don't know if that is already out there. I don't know if that exists. If it is, somebody send it to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to read it. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, let's say that you have some social support structure and nobody works out, right? Mm-hmm. Then you're also not going to work out. And here's the problem with that. There's been some animal research done and, you know, the ethics of that are debatable. But what they find in these animal studies is that if somebody has been disconnected, if they've been isolated, if they put in solitary confinement, right, then if you're going to have them exercise versus someone who is connected and exercising, the person who's lonely, disconnected, is going to secrete less of something called BDNF. And that's a factor that's uh, excreted in the brain in response to exercise and other things, but very much exercise, that actually helps the brain grow, stimulates growth. And so there's less of that if you're nicely. The person who needs more of it because they're isolated, disconnected, feeling cruddy is not going to get as good of an outcome from the same stimulus, from the same exercise. So more research is definitely needed there. But When you're saying people, did you mean the animals that were in the study? Did I say people? Yeah. No. The animals in the study. Okay. I just want to make sure this wasn't like, you know, replicated in humans. Just to be clear. Yeah. No, this is all animals. (laughs) But that brings up that one of the worst and technically allowed things that you can do to a person in prison is put them in solitary. I was just going to bring that up. Yeah. And and people, I think, who don't recognize the harmful effects of, of lack of a social support system probably don't. I think maybe when I was younger, I was like, I don't know, why is that so bad? And you don't realize how awful that is. That's why it's a punishment. Yeah. And, you know, some people are in it for a day. Some people are in it for years. There have been court cases involving that. But to move on with other ways and pathways that this is going to have an effect, it's going to screw up sleep. And... If you go back to what we discussed previously with sleep, sleep is vital to life. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. (laughs) And so there's increasing evidence that with increasing disconnection, there's probably worse sleep. And now, looking at these studies, I don't doubt that that could be easily true. But there's also room for error. There's some confounders that could be there, right? It could be confounded by depression. um, And by a lot of the data and the research I was seeing was on self-reported data on how they felt. And one of the effects of sleep deprivation is going to be you feel worse and perceive things worse. And so which came first, chicken or egg? Yeah, that's I haven't tough. seen any studies that conclusively address that for me. But just thinking about it logically, these probably are reciprocal, right? The probably. worse sleep you have, the more lonely you are. The more disconnected you are, the worse sleep you have, back and forth. And that goes into, why would that be? Because threat assessments, mm-hmm. right? I think we talked about this before, but when people are lonely, they go into fearfulness. They go into suspicion. It's a terrible downward cycle, right? You end up, if you're chronically lonely, then you end up in a state where you're actually extra sensitive to social stimuli. Mm-hmm. Right. So that sounds good. Okay. You're lonely. You need people. You're going to tune in real closely to social stimulus. Oh, that guy's smiling. Uh, that woman's laughing. Uh, that kid's picking his nose. I don't know what that means, but <laughs> you're really just reading into this. And now, but it, in that state, you're also threatened, right? If you were on the Serengeti and you were lonely, you were without a tribe, and suddenly you encounter a new group of people. And then, you know, out in the jungle, there's still lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. So now... I don't know if there are many bears in the jungle. No, they've gone extinct. But... (laughs) (laughs) Well, there maybe used to be. I don't know. This is thousands of years ago. It's it's true. (laughs) And so you start perceiving things more. You're tuned in more, but you're screwing it up when you tune in. Right? Just like we talked about earlier where people were shown objects and faces and asked to interpret them, lonely versus not lonely, the people that were lonely got it wrong more. The same thing happens when you do this to sleep-deprived people. 
Now you come to the realization that sleep and loneliness screw each other up even more, that that's its own vicious cycle. Now, everything a person that's chronically lonely sees is more threatening, right? They've got to judge it in terms of survival or not survival. Is this going to help me link up and protect myself? Suddenly it's all about, can I, is this protecting myself? And so if they're interpreting it wrong, they're responding to it wrong. They're screwing up when they interact with people. They're screwing up in a way that keeps them lonely. That sucks. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know what to say. Yeah. They end up more hostile, more reactive. They're less willing to share things about themselves, less vulnerable, less open, more closed off. They're more isolated. And so when people interpret that, because this is a back and forth communication between the person who feels this way and other people, other people will see that lonely person and go, something seems off about them. They're so hostile and reactive and they won't share anything. I don't think I want to really be involved mm -hmm. with that person and hang out with that person. And so I'm going to leave them alone. I'm going to shun them. Right? And I've heard some researchers, uh, it's been in the papers, they call it the loneliness loop. I think it was a Dr. Cassiopa, who's a giant in the field of loneliness research. They may have coined that. But the answer to why you're lonely is because you're lonely. It's hard. And it's hard to, I don't know. I was going to say I kind of defend the people, I guess, who leave those people alone because they're trying to maintain their social supports and good connections. And the person who they view as hostile or threatening it's probably not somebody you'd want to invite into your social circle. So the solution for it is being rejected by other people because of the problem in the first place. So I, that, that's tough. That is hard. It's hard to exit the loop. Mm -hmm. yeah, but when we talk about how to exit the loop, we'll get more into that. Mm -hmm. But if we're just going right back to the, how did this happen? Why does it have these effects on our body and our survival? Some other mechanisms include higher blood pressure, like we talked about when the, those college kids were doing backwards math, subtracting 17s without calculators. This was before hope, calculators were so. on phones. This is before if they, phones. If they got that stressed out while subtracting <clears throat> 17 with a calculator, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> We've got some other problems. <laughs> so they have increased vascular resistance. Everything's clamped down, right? There are various ways to increase a person's blood pressure. One of the most common ways is just making all the tubes smaller. Same stuff getting held in the tubes, but now the tubes are smaller, so there's a lot more pressure in there. And that comes on, like we talked about earlier, with stress and sympathetic stimulation and all that. And so you'll find increased uh, sympathetic stimulation in people that are lonely. When you look at urine and you have people collect their urine in the mornings who are lonely or more isolated, they have higher levels of epinephrine. This is in older people as well, not just college kids. And when you track people that are lonely versus not lonely, and you have them stop and put a cotton ball in their mouth to get a sample of their saliva at various times of the day and track that, the people who are more lonely and isolated have higher levels of cortisol in their system. So, you know, they're more stressed out. And there's other potential mechanisms that are still getting studied and still building data behind it, but looking interesting and like they're also uh, contributing are things like what we talked about with the blood vessels changing themselves, with increased plaque going into the blood vessels, with just stiffness, how well they can flex those blood vessels. Can they open when they need to, contract when they need to? Uh, how well do the protective lining of those blood vessels work, what's called endothelial cells? How protective are they still? How much nitric oxide are they releasing, which is a chemical that does a lot of things. Uh, one, it makes things less stuck, sticky, so things flow better. One is that it lets the blood vessel open easier, so more blood can flow. That might be one of the ways. Is it just because we have increasing... Chemicals like epinephrine going through our system, is it because we can't do the opposite? Meaning we don't have as much relaxation going on. We can't diffuse that sympathetic response when we need to. 
And also, it may have activities just in the plaque building of literally when it comes down to how do these platelets, these clotting factors in our blood, and how do smooth muscles get into these plaques, smooth muscle cells, that may also be affected. So it's coming to be seen that there may be just a huge variety of ways that this is becoming affected, that this is hurting us. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to tease out exactly which one is caused by this one. Yeah. Yeah, well, especially when you're talking about a complex behavior, like social interactions, that, that's, that's tough research. But intuitively, even by, I mean, all the biochemical stuff, I think, is, is we've talked about a lot of that before. But intuitively with, you know, the, the additional addition of stress and all the things we're talking about, the, the typical pathologic responses we have to that, that seems to make a lot of sense. No. And when you look at studies that try to increase connection in just real time, short little bursts, you can find some of the opposite. And you can find people like in the math study that have lower reactivity, you can find improvements that happen. Some people have postulated that oxytocin may be one of these mechanisms. This is the bonding hormone between mother and child. <clears throat> and there was one interesting study done that looked at warm contact time or, okay, we're going to put you in this room, see what your oxytocin levels do, see what your blood pressure and things do, and then we're going to let your significant other come in to make sure that all these people had significant others. You're going to have some time together to sit down, and then we're going to have them leave, and then we're going to check these things again. And the oxytocin levels after what was called the warm contact time increased by about one-third to 50%. Hmm. Seems like a significant amount. Yeah. 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 Now, I mean, this study had its limitations. It only tracked out to about 10 minutes of time after that warm contact time. Mm -hmm. But you could say, all right, but if your day is full of contact, then maybe it stays up. Yeah, and I don't know if that's, I mean, the way you're describing the study, I didn't read the study myself, but it sounds like it was looking specifically at the acute phase of that and not necessarily like the the goal of the study wasn't to say how long but i mean the fact that it rises that quickly is reassuring i guess it means you don't need to be doing this for six months to start to feel anything you know yeah and it did not look at what they felt but um, sure just wanted to know does this hormone move do we move the needle on this and you do you do move yeah Mm -hmm. so now what exactly did they do in that warm contact time nobody knows because they left the room and they left them all alone so But they had them, at the very least, they gave them instructions. They said, sit here next to each other. Hold hands if you're okay holding hands. Uh, here, watch this romantic video for five minutes. I don't know what they did. Maybe it's Harry and Sally. I have no idea. And then talk about a time when you felt close. And then after that time, go ahead and give each other a hug for 20 seconds. There was, there was a slew of things that they did as an intervention. This sounds like my worst nightmare. <laughs> like, just the... I'm not saying it's not good for you. This is a good thing. This is a good thing for most people. I'm just saying for, <laughs> for me, <laughs> unless that was my wife, that would be a that would be a struggling moment for me. Well, yes, this this should be your significant other. Can you imagine if some stranger came in? And you're supposed to do this. You know, I think that happens with a lot of people. <laughs> like, I, I don't. I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but I think that a lot of like we that the amount of people that they have these horror stories like like I do that I'm picturing this stuff. Like, they think that this is all like them with a therapist or something. That would be very difficult for me. Wait, oh, sorry. Yeah, in, no. in this study, was it somebody that they were close with or was it a random person? It was their significant other. Oh, that's fine then. Never mind. I missed that part. Yeah, I thought they yeah. were like doing this with like a, like a control person coming in there and doing this. And I'm like, this sounds like an absolute nightmare. No, that's fine. I can do yeah, that. All I was thinking was, I'm glad this is being recorded so I can make Nina listen to this. <laughs> yeah, no, Nina, this would be okay if I did this with you. Nina, if you're listening to me, which you should be listening to this at some point. That would be fine with me. <laughs> wow, that's so welcoming. I would be okay with that. I would be okay with holding hands with you, Nina. <laughs> no, no, oh, that's the thing. Like, such love. But yeah, that's that's the part that we. I mean, we talked about this before the podcast started. That I'm, I'm not a big fan of of human contact, except for with my wife. Like, I don't like being physically touched. Like, I don't. I'm not a huge hug. Like, I, it's not my thing. But I, I do like my wife and I like, you know, I, I like, I do enjoy cuddling with my wife. I will, I'll be the first to say that. 
That is true. <laughs> Way to be vulnerable. Way to let out a secret. <laughs> yeah, I feel like this is very cathartic for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm getting somewhere now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but vulnerability is important, like we just talked about. Yeah. Um, when you're not, when you're closed off, when you're keeping to yourself, these are all things that are going to be interpreted in a way that keeps a lonely person lonely. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So let's pause here. I think I've imparted the data that I wanted to, unless you want to bring anything else up. And then let's come into our next session and really just focus in on what can we do about it? Yeah, I think that was a good time for a break. Uh, And yeah, we'll talk next time about, yeah, what we can do about this to actually escape that loneliness circle. Was it loneliness circle? Loneliness loop. Loneliness loop, yes. But loops are all often in circle form, so it's work. I like the alliteration. Speaking of alliteration, we have a guest for our next podcast. Her name is Dr. Meghna Mahambre. She has a PhD in human development and family science and is the owner and founder of Spark Relationship and Sexual Wellness. She's quite qualified to continue our talk about loneliness and relationships, as that's what she does for a living. She does public speaking and events as well as private one-on-one coaching about sexuality and relationships. So as it pertains to advancing our discussion here and teaching us and you guys about loneliness and relationships, she's definitely the right person to ask. So we're really looking forward to having her on the podcast to teach us a thing or two about this stuff. While we're waiting for that podcast to come out, go ahead and visit our website at www.cprhealthclinic.com for more information and leave this podcast a five-star rating. It helps us to get found out by other members in the community. In the meantime, just remember, the way you live can save your life.